Fame is an element. And like most elements, fame can come in a number of various shapes, sizes, forms, durability, sources, and different ways to attain it. There are those who can be famous for discovering something groundbreaking in the world of science. There are those who gain fame for their endurance on the sporting field. And there are those who gain fame because of their talents in any other given field. On the flip side of the coin, there are those who become famous for the infamy that they attain over time, whether it be through acts of atrocity or simple dumb luck. But no matter what the intentions are, fame itself can be used as a force of good or a tool for evil, depending on how someone uses it. And the way it's used could wind up either shaping the world or be a proverbial chip in the boulder that ultimately shatters. We realize that this might be a little too deep of a thought to have when it comes to today's subject. But for someone who achieved seemingly white-hot levels of fame back in her heyday, she could have used her fame a little more wisely than this. Her world is a world of passion. No man can resist her. She comes from another time and place. She's Vanna White, and someday she's the goddess of love. And now, it could be worse. This is Tella Hell. I mentioned this briefly a while ago when she made a cameo on the 1986 Jay Leno scientific experiment disguised as a comedy special. But it probably goes beyond the realm of hyperbole to state just how popular Vanna White was during the 1980s. Born in Myrtle Beach, South Carolina under the name Vanna Marie Rosich. Yes, that was her actual birth name. The surname White actually came from her stepfather. After graduating high school in 1979, young Vanna sought a career in modeling by moving out to California. But Hollywood could be an unforgiving land. So, young Vanna needed to make a quick buck. Something she thought she would do when she was picked to come on down on The Price is Right in 1980. Backstage, they have monitors that the fellows on the crew can watch what's going on out here, just like the monitors here. They're just like television sets. When Vanna was invited to come on down, one of them read her T-shirt where it says, Get Serious. And he said, I am. I am. I thought you'd like to know that. Despite not making it on stage to play a pricing game, her poise, her presence, and certainly her good looks got her noticed by enough people that she started booking some minor roles in low-budget B-movies, but nothing that would be considered a breakthrough. Fast forward to 1982 and another game show classic. Before there was a Pat and Vanna, there was a Chuck and Susan, a.k.a. Chuck Woolery and Susan Stafford, who were the faces of Wheel of Fortune when it debuted on NBC in 1975 right up to 1981, when Woolery left the show over a pay dispute. Pat Sajak then replaced Woolery, but Stafford stayed for another year, ultimately leaving the show in October 1982 and leaving a vacancy for the show's resident puzzle revealer. During the next few months of 1982, a number of different models would take turns displaying the puzzle and clapping politely. But in the end, there was one clear winner. And now we will officially welcome her. Please do that for Vanna White. Vanna! Three weeks later, I was taping my first show. Vanna White would become Wheel of Fortune's permanent co-host, 
a position that she's held, give or take a few weeks off for personal reasons, for 40 years and counting. And before you nitpick, yes, I know, there was the NBC daytime version on top of the syndicated version that's still going on today. All of those years count. From the moment she debuted, however, a strange phenomenon was starting to take place. More people started to tune into the show, if not for viewers tuning in out of curiosity over how the fresh faces would fare, but it would also turn out that more and more people would tune in just to watch Vanna more than they would the actual intention of the show, to see people win big money. Men would tune in because of the pretty face, while women would tune in just to see what she would be wearing that day. Her popularity was such that she managed to reach a point in her career where you almost literally couldn't turn on the TV without everybody fawning over her. At what point did you realize, oh boy, I'm a household name. I mean, I'm a first name only person, Vanna, like that big. That was when I was in the grocery line checking out and I was on the cover of Newsweek. I thought, wow, I guess I've made it. By the middle of the 1980s, with a syndicated wheel becoming one of the most watched daily TV shows in America, Vanna's popularity would rise along with the ratings. So much so that the powers that be in showbiz felt it was time for Vanna to let her fans know a little bit more about her. 1987 saw the arrival of her best-selling memoir, Vanna Speaks, which offered readers probably the most intimate glimpse yet into the life of America's vowel vixen. But in spite of the fame that she would achieve, there was still some lingering doubt in the air. Namely, could anybody truly become famous simply for putting on a dress, walking back and forth, turning around letter tiles, and smiling and clapping politely? In other words, what else could Vanna offer the world aside from a pretty face? That would be something that a screenwriter and producer named Don Segal would try to figure out. Segal was another one of those great unsung showbiz writers who, at one point, practically wrote for every major TV show in a given heyday, writing for shows like The Jeffersons, Good Times, MASH, Different Strokes, Benson, and even The Love Boat. Also, in a piece of trivia I honestly didn't see coming, he also happened to be the father of this very famous voice actor slash comedian. That's my purse! I don't know you! I know, I know, it's irrelevant to what we're talking about, but I thought that was kind of cool trivia that I really didn't want to gloss over. Anyway, in 1988, Seagal, and another writer who deserves his own segment later for reasons that we'll get to, came up with an idea for a TV movie that could potentially turn into a TV series. It would be the tale of a Greek goddess imprisoned as a statue, and she would not be able to return to Mount Olympus until she can make a man fall in love with her for reasons that we'll get to momentarily. The movie would star a who's who of where do I know that guy froms, including David Naughton, the guy from the Dr. Pepper commercials who later turned into a werewolf in London. I understand, all right. You're one of the undead, and I'm a werewolf. David Leisure, who became a wacky TV neighbor after spending years as a Hare Krishna in the airplane movies, but not before lying to us to sell some small cars. The Trooper 2 starts at just $10.80. Yeah, my mom's word on it. Philip Baker Hall, a.k.a. Jerry Seinfeld's library cop. Got any coffee? Coffee? Yeah, coffee. No, I don't drink coffee. Yeah, you don't drink coffee? How about instant coffee? No, I don't have... You don't have any instant coffee? Well, I don't normally... Who doesn't have instant coffee? I don't. 
You buy a jar of Folgers crystals, you put it in the cupboard, you forget about it. And Amanda Beers, nom de plume of Al Bundy's worst nightmare. The crowd is on its feet cheering. I'm down. The count starts. The crowd's screaming, get up, but I can't. I won't. <laughs> now, all that was needed was the right person to play the goddess. Since this was a TV movie for NBC, and since NBC in the late 80s was riding high as the number one TV network, you'd think that finding somebody to play a figure in Greek mythology would be a slam dunk. But since it looked like the writer's strike of 1988 was going to cost the network some lost revenue from ample reruns, the easier thing to do would be to hire somebody who was already working on the network, who wasn't super busy doing other things. Long story short, some six years after being the victim of a Lloyd Kaufman-staged horror movie death, Vanna White would soon make her most significant effort yet into the world of acting. November 20th, 1988. TV shows were slowly but surely returning to TV screens as the writer's strike ended a month earlier. Bad Medicine by Bon Jovi was at the top of the charts. And at 9 p.m., 8 p.m. Central, we fly through clouds with a brown enough color filter to make you think that you were flying through Los Angeles during rush hour. After which, we find ourselves in somebody's well-appointed garden set that I'm sure was rented out to the movie for this one shot, where the god of all gods, Zeus, gives one of his god daughters a very stern talking to. Aphrodite. With apologies, dear Father Zeus, you know I prefer to be called Venus. And that's all that needs to be said. Good night, everybody! Okay, 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 I wouldn't do that to you this soon. But really, after a line reading like that, can you expect things to go anywhere else but downhill from here? And yes, before I need to be reminded endlessly, this is a low-budget TV movie. We're not expecting anything on the levels of Laurence Olivier here, but with a reading like that at the top, the bar for this one should be set so low it's practically neighbors with the Earth's core. Anyway, Zeus who, shockingly enough, is played by John Reese davies in one of the sole iotas of credit that I'm going to give this movie, punishes Venus White on the following terms. You have long sat among your peers as goddess of love, but it is quite clear that you still have no idea of the meaning of love. The council has spoken. Banishment. Banishment! My father! The... Perfect reaction to a severe punishment, by the way. The rough equivalent of going, ah, nuts. A punishment that involves being turned into a statue until such a time comes when she knows what love is. Disregarding for a second just how she'll find out when she's unable to move and interact with others, but then again, it is just a TV movie, not a cinematic universe where everything needs to be explained. As we jump into present day times, the Statue of Venus is on display at an L.A. museum, where shortly after the last tour of the day wraps up, two thieves who look like they're a page out of the bumbling cartoon character playbook then try to steal the statue. For reasons, I'm sure. 15 minutes and 40 seconds to finish step one. Let's not keep the lady waiting. As we then slam-cut ourselves to our next two characters, a pair of rough and rugged hair salon workers. You heard me where we meet the American werewolf out of London and his buddy, the Hare Krishna from Airplane, discussing the former's upcoming marriage and the bachelor party that will come before it. This is a wedding ring. Saturday, it starts living on Kathy's finger. I am officially retired from active duty. 
I don't want to be the kind of guy who waves old obligations in a friend's face. But what about Lisa Miller? And what about the twins? The twins? You have the nerve to mention the twins again? And Cynthia, the campus sweetheart? I thought we closed the book on Cynthia. One more page, and we're even. Jeez, the way David Leisure's describing these women, you'd think he'd be selling us in a Zuzu. Meanwhile, back at the museum, the thieves try to make off with the Venus statue in broad daylight. Again, try not to read too much logic into this. Ultimately, they happen to bring the statue to the very place where Dr. Pepper is having his bachelor party, and is wondering why Joe Izuzu talked him into having one. In fact, Dr. Pepper is so full of guilt that he needs to call his fiance, Marcy Darcy, just for a little comfort and assurance just as somebody else is trying to do the same thing to him physically in a phone booth. And you're having as good a time as I am. What's wrong? I thought you were having dinner with Jimmy. That's what I thought too, but somehow I managed to walk into my own bachelor party. Leave it to Jimmy. I didn't even know people did things like that anymore. It's all been updated. I figured this tripper's gonna jump out of a giant quiche. I love you, Ted. Thanks, I needed that. After presumably the last lap dance that he'll ever receive, Dr. Pepper continues to lament to Charlie from Empty Nest on just how important marriage is. And what better way to illustrate the point than... It's very simple. Boy, girl, wedding ring, finger, married. Vanna emerges from her stone slumber. Meanwhile, Dr. Pepper is trying to get his engagement ring back from a now-living and rogue statue. But as is the case in your standard Michigan J. Frog playbook, nobody believes that a statue stole a ring, and hilarity ensues. Look, it's just right over here. Come on, Ted. I know all my statues. I don't have one like that. And I know what I saw. And this is bizarre. It was right here. So, a statue walked out on you. Maybe you should try a different cologne. And so ends the same portion of the movie. Everything else that happens from here on out will either be akin to a fever dream, after effects of blunt force trauma, or a hallucination causing brain tumor. As Vanna White now starts to flex her acting muscles. My beloved. Huh? I am Venus, daughter of Zeus. 3,000 years I have lain entranced in slumber, and now the loving touch of a mortal hand has called me from my rest. Your hand has placed this ring upon my finger, has it not? My ring? Yeah, it seems as though Venus's logic of finding her true love is boiled down to pretty much the same dynamics when King Arthur found Excalibur. Strange women lying in ponds, distributing swords is no basis for a system of government. Be quiet! As is the case in anything fantastical, we get a good old dose of prove it, as Venus shows Dr. Pepper only a small taste of her power with the best strobe lights and wind machines the 1980s had to offer. You don't even know Jimmy, do you? Together, you and I will dwell for eternity on Mount Olympus. Act 2 sees Dr. Pepper trying to reason with an all-powerful goddess, as one does. Eternity sounds great, don't get me wrong. It's just that it takes up so much of your time. Besides, I have my own plans. You love another. Uh, Oh, no, no. If so, I shall crush her. Crush her? Crush her. Uh, I may be a bit behind in my Greek mythology, but I don't seem to recall Venus slash Aphrodite to be a vengeful kind of god, especially if love is involved. Or do I? Wikipedia, I summon you! 
Let's see. Associated with love, lust, and beauty, so at least one circle later. Hooked up with a lot of the gods in Greek and Roman culture. Let's see. Aphrodite generously rewarded those who honored her, but also punished those who disrespected her, often quite brutally. I'm described in Apollonius of Rhodes's... Oh, God, I'm not even going to say these names. <laughs> uh, let's see. Uh, tells the story of how when the women of the island of Lemnos refused to sacrifice to her, the goddess cursed them to stink horribly so that their husbands would never have sex with them. Well, that's a far cry from electrocuting someone, don't you think? I guess they had to amp things up for TV purposes. Which is just as well, because what the here kind of punishment is smelling bad? Just bathe yourself in a tub of tomato juice like you were sprayed by a skunk. Problem solved. Great perfume. I don't understand. Perfume, it's something you put on to smell good. I put nothing on to smell good. You smell this good naturally? All goddesses do. Or become a goddess and put the perfume industry out of business. Anyway, Dr. Pepper continues to try and make sense of things. Venus. Any red-blooded American mortal would give his eye teeth to go back to Greece with you, but I'm not the kind of guy who gets his troth plighted every day. All I want is a little time to adjust, okay? Very well. You shall have your time. I take leave of you now. Great. I'll show you out. You'll need some light. I wouldn't want you to fall and break anything. And she turns back into the statue. I know I should be asking why she wasn't able to do so for 3,000 years, but maybe that power had to be earned upon putting the ring on her finger. But of course, I digress, as we then head into the first of several wacky montages that we know are meant to move things along, but really pad out the time as Dr. Pepper proceeds to use every possible lubricant and tool imaginable to slip the ring off of Vanna's finger. Now, I'm going to be very careful, but I've got to have that ring back. But to little avail, as he's soon visited by Detective Bookman, which I know is not Philip Baker Hall's character's name here, but damn if I don't associate him with Seinfeld until the end of time. Manager of the Pleasure Garden said he never had a statue like the one you described, but yesterday afternoon a uh, statue was disappeared from the museum. Very valuable. I was pretty busy with something when I got home. You're a comedian. You make people laugh. I try. You think this is all a big joke, don't you? I've been working on a pet project in the living room. The time just whizzed by. You know, I, um, I'm kind of a handyman myself. I would love to have a peek. Uh, it isn't finished. What about that kid sitting down, opening a book right now in a branch of the local library and finding drawings of peepees and wee-wees? And a cat in the hat. One minute your heart is a rock, and the next you're very soft and warm and stolen property. Plus, you're making me crazy because you won't give me my ring back. Thus, last evening, you tried to take it by force, thinking I was unaware. You knew? Did I hurt you? Not half the hurt you bring me now by demanding the ring. <sighs> Look, I know we're only part of the way through this, and I'm all but certain that Vanna White seems like... A nice lady who's done many good things aside from turning slash activating letters on a puzzle board. But a little emoting would be nice. I mean, you have lightning and wind machines going on in the background. And the most emotion you could muster up is the same kind of enthusiasm reserved for selling feminine hygiene products. Hopefully things pick up as Dr. Pepper shows Venus the hair salon that he works in. 
where hilarity continues to ensue. This place looks like some sort of torture chamber. Depends whose chair you're in. There, see? Not exactly a place where a god would hang out. I don't know. A little manure on the floor and Hephaestus would be right at home. More time-killing slash hard-boiled egg-making takes place until we meet our next participant, and arguably where the rest of the movie's budget went aside from John Reese davies Brace yourself. It's time for Little Richard as Dr. Pepper's co-worker. I certainly hope you didn't pay too much for this. <laughs> you know those flea markets can be such a ripple. And the thought just occurred to me... This is the story of a hip and trendy, well, let's just say artist of some kind, who has some issues involving love. Issues that happen to be complicated by a statue that comes to life through supernatural means. A statue whose human representation he winds up befriending while working at his place of employment, where one of his co-workers happens to be an effeminate black man. Why, oh why, does that sound familiar? Your magic. He's talking to the dummy again. Andrew McCarthy. Kim Cattrall. Mannequin. Though for legal purposes, not 100% identical to the real thing. I now officially can't watch the rest of this without thinking of just exactly how they're accidentally ripping off the movie Mannequin. And considering who our main actress is in this, I'm kind of wondering if they should have called this movie Vanekin instead. Thank you, thank you. I'm here for all eternity. After dealing with that coincidence, Dr. Pepper tries worming his way out of an eternity among the gods. And I don't belong with the gods, Venus. I'm just a mortal. Just a mortal who can harness the wind. It's only a machine. Zeus will be delighted. And when we go home and you meet Zeus, bring your windmaker with you. <laughs> if you think Sala from Indiana Jones will be impressed by a blow dryer, he'll really be blown away by the Ark of the Covenant. which I hear can dry hair a lot faster. Meanwhile, Dr. Pepper picks up Al Bundy's neighbor and continues to play mental gymnastics through the power of lying. That's a cornerstone of a healthy relationship, right? I mean, I don't have it with me. Of course I have it. <laughs> but I thought it was bad luck for the bride to see the ring before the ceremony. It's the groom seeing the bride that's bad luck. But I don't believe in all that. You know, Kathy, in no time at all, that ring will be living on this finger. And just as the bride and groom-to-be play catch-up, Vanekin shows up at the end of the first half with a look of doom that all but says... For the honor of Grayskull! Hey, now he emotes! We'll see what kind of power she unleashes. After the break... I drink Dr. Pepper and I'm proud... I used to be alone in a crowd But now you look around these days There seems to be a Dr. Pepper craze I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper We're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper If you drink Dr. Pepper, you're a pepper too Us peppers are an interesting breed An original taste is what we need Ask any pepper and it'll say Only Dr. Pepper tastes that way I'm a pepper, he's a pepper, she's a pepper We're a pepper, wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? I'm a pepper, 
he's a pepper, she's a pepper, we're a pepper. Wouldn't you like to be a pepper too? Be a pepper, drink Dr. Pepper. Come on. Be a pepper, drink Dr. Pepper. All right. Be a pepper, drink Dr. Pepper. This week on Telehealth's premium content of the Dan. Where can you find a morning news anchor who's provocative, super smart, oh yeah, and just a little sexy? CNN, yeah, CNN. Paula Zahn hosts American Morning starting Monday, 7 Eastern, that's right, on CNN. The only way to listen to Telehealth's premium content of The Damned is by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash podcast. For just a few bucks a month, you can listen to our premium content and get some swag along the way. Once again, that's patreon.com slash podcast. And now... Back to this week's torture. Act 3 of this unauthorized mannequin sequel sees Vanekin about to unleash her vengeance on the mortal who freed her. And just how does Dr. Pepper get himself out of this one? I've only known you for a year, but it's like we've been together for a lifetime. I feel like we're brother and sister. And he never had problems again. I'm just kidding, we still have 50 minutes left, and you should know better by now. Kathy is your love. I was going to tell you. So naturally, you left Venus flatly in your heads-up salon. You're mad. You're not going to start crushing, are you? No. No? Why bother? No mortal woman can compete with Venus. You will choose me. Acting! As we now venture into your typical sitcom plot that even Love American style would put through an industrial shredder. That of the man who is happily in love with somebody else, only for a third wheel to come in and disrupt things. You know, come to think of it, that too is a ripoff, because that's literally the details in the very first episode of Love American style. A man's ex gets an engagement ring stuck on her finger, and he spends the rest of the show trying to cover it up. You're wearing her ring? You've got no right. Take it off. I'm trying. You're trying? No! Do you think she saw me? So now, to avoid any further accidental plagiarism, let's focus on Dr. Pepper giving Venus a makeover. For some reason, because... Why would the goddess of love need a makeover? When might I look? Just a second. Almost finished. Just keep your eyes closed. You have a gentle touch. You are truly an artist. You have the bone structure. Ah, yes, the haunting mating call of complimenting one's bone structure. Suck it, Casanova. Meanwhile, it's been a while since we've heard from Joey Suzu. Let's see what he can add to the farce aside from Smarm. Is this person your friend? Friend? (laughs) I'm Ted's brother. Practically. (laughs) Your family gets bigger and bigger. Don't go away, doll. You ain't seen nothing yet. I've seen enough to put you in a certain amount of jeopardy. I... 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 I just... I... Play it again. I've seen enough to put you in a certain amount of jeopardy. I'm certain the writers of the movie knew what they were doing when they wrote that line, but... You have Vanna White. 
a ubiquitous TV personality who, at her peak, was seen by tens of millions of people at least once a week. Maybe two, three, four times a day in some cities. And you have the unmitigated gall and temerity to have her say this? I've seen enough to put you in a certain amount of jeopardy. Instead of a Wheel of Fortune, Pond feels akin to having people confusing Daffy Duck for his main competitor. Oh, that's Daffy! Daffy Duck! I can't believe you'd mistake a big star like me for that other duck who can't even talk straight! I know you're a low-budget TV movie, and I know the urge is there to feel like you don't have to try. But try to try, please. And now, after we scrub off the residue of a throwaway line that I really should not have reacted that way towards, all we can do is move on. After some standard-issue pablum where Joe Isuzu doesn't believe him, we then rejoin our thieves from the beginning of the movie, who, to be fair, popped up earlier throughout the movie, but let's face it, they're your standard bumbling bad guys in a rom-com. Their fates are pretty much sealed from the second they appear on screen but not before they think they have the upper hand. Here, take my money. I am not a common criminal. Now, my partner and I would just like to have a little talk with you. Move towards the bank. Move. Long story short, the thieves want Dr. Pepper to return the statue. And he only has a few days to do so. Or else. And while Dr. Pepper wishes he had those werewolf-transforming powers on hand to make short work of the bad guys, Vanekin is pretty much left to her own devices for the first time straight on through to Act 4, up to and including stealing his car and his credit cards. And... Let's pause here for a second. Earlier in the show, we mentioned that this TV movie was co-written by Don Segal. But we also mentioned that a second writer was involved in this production. Let me introduce you now to that writer and his background, because coming up in the next few minutes is a sequence that almost made my brain emulsify itself into a fine jelly. Now, before you think to yourself that we've taken a sharp turn into irrelevance, yes, the same guy who came up with the song that you're hearing right now is also a figure in this story, just not on camera. The late Phil Margo, along with his brother Mitch, were the driving forces behind The Tokens, whose song The Lion Sleeps Tonight topped the charts for three weeks in 1961, after which Margo would embark on numerous projects as a music producer for the better part of the 20th century, including albums by The Chiffons, The Happenings, and Tony Orlando and Dawn, among others. But when he wasn't making music, Margot also dabbled in some fiction writing on the side. While we're not 100% certain what Margot's overall contribution was to this movie, he is credited as both the executive producer of the movie, one of its writers, and also one of the composers of this movie's music, and... Satan help me. The dulcet tones that you're about to hear, which he also co-wrote with his brother Mitch. That being said... I subject you to the abject horrors that is shopping spree. She took off in your wheels, headed into town, pulled out your credit and spread it all around and called shopping spree. Bye-bye. Shopping spree. Shopping spree. 
itself seems pretty innocuous and I kind of feel that just playing the song by itself here may not actually give the footage that plays behind it much justice which is also why I made it this week's YouTube promo oh, by the way we put promos for our show up on YouTube now just thought you should know because it's just about the only way to properly quantify just what the flying fuck it is you're hearing that's youtube.com slash telehellpodcast, by the way. And yes, we're playing the whole damn thing, both there and here. Because if I'm being tortured to watch crap like this for all of eternity, the least I can do in return is let you come for the ride whether you want to or not. One thing's for sure, this scene would have been infinitely more bearable if Vanna White told off any of the shopkeepers pretty woman style. Big mistake. Big. Huge. But surprise, surprise, I digress. I kind of have to here because this song and this sequence runs a staggering two minutes and 36 seconds. And god damn it, I'll vamp it up until I'm sucking blood out of someone's neck. And that was Shopping Spree, a song that may very well be in the running to become Hell's next ringtone, although I will miss hearing the sounds of the Bradys doing the hustle. After those two and a half minutes of life that you're never getting back, we then see little Richard earning his paycheck over the furor that his top hairstylist has gone AWOL. I can't confirm your feet, Mrs. Carter. He's not even here yet. I can't wait much longer. I do his comb out. I am not his keeper. Oh, really? Do you know how long I have been here? He remembered why he was. Ted. It's safe to come in at three, Mrs. And while I'm. Oh no 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 no! Sweet sweet, this song is still going for another thirty seconds. If my brain was any more liquefied, I need to put in an air filter so Fitch can swim in it. For the love of all that is unholy, please get back to the plot. Look, I brought you gifts, and guess what? The nice woman in the store said that all of your plastic is over the limit. Is that not wonderful? Well, let's see. There's Grand Theft Auto for the car, Grand Larceny for using his credit cards, Petty Larceny for using what was left on those cards to buy 20 pizzas, and the fact that Dr. Pepper's credit score now has more holes in it than the plot of a TV movie. So, yeah, I think wonderful is a fair word to use in this case, but wonders have to cease temporarily as Steve Rhodes' ex-wife shows up and the two of them go to lunch, while little Richard does his best Meshack Taylor impression. May both of them rest in peace. Another minute, your poor will be singing Hosanna to the skill of Alfonso Rinaldi. Can you feel the magic? Oh my God! You've made me look like Hades! Relax, sweet thing! You're gonna destroy all of my hard work! Magic! Bring the Slater Cafe only! Well, you know 
they say about here having no fury like a woman scorned. So much so that Vanekin burns down the salon in anger. And you would think she'd be brought up on arson charges. But that wouldn't be the madcap rom-com way of life. Just a few pointed observations and it's never brought up again. Don't believe me? Your emotions in Washington set did not appreciate the cafe LA. She was already out a zillion degrees Fahrenheit and suddenly she said something about Zeus and Kaflui. The whole place went up. <laughs> and it landed right in the middle of this big plantation. Yes, I know, I used that clip before, but in the spirit of a Wheel of Fortune hostess in this movie, I'd be remiss if I didn't do my own before and after. Little Richard Pryor! Thank you, thank you, thank you. Just then, Seinfeld's library cop arrives on the scene, a mere 40 minutes after making his first appearance. But better late than never. Not another do-it-yourself project, I hope. How bad is it? Well, I've never seen anything quite like it. Every single circuit overloaded at the same time. I burned out all your equipment. It's just like lightning strike. Beats me. That blonde witch come back in this shop again. I'm out of here. I don't care who her father is. Which brings us to the final act of the movie, as well as the final act of patience Vanekin has with Dr. Pepper, as she laments to a local bartender her potential Emmy Award-lacking complaint. I offer him eternity. Is that such a crime? Some guys just don't know a good thing when they see it. If he does not come back to Mount Olympus with me, my father Zeus will say I failed at love again. And while the notion of a drunk Vanna White would probably give Wheel of Fortune its highest ratings ever, our comic relief returns to see if he can sleaze it up some more. What's to know? My friend's in trouble. Stress engulfs you. Just tell old Jimmy what you want him to do. Here's a picture of Kathy's ring. Find a jeweler, any jeweler, who can make a cheap copy by tomorrow just to get me through the ceremony. I'll worry about getting the real ring after I'm married. Sounds simple enough. Just in time for the thieves to come back but also in time for the police to show up with you-know-who. You are so kind and gentle for a gladiator. I adore physically active men. You may go now. Jeez, she's so persuasive with law enforcement, it wouldn't surprise me if Venus's real name was Nimbus. Fight! Fuck! Flee! Get out of here. So now, a still tipsy Vanekin returns to Dr. Pepper. And since this is the latter part of the movie, it's about time to throw in some stakes and consequences. Just in time for Joe Isuzu to finally be on board with the whole beautiful woman is actually a goddess that can turn into a statue thing. Poor Zeus. Venus was a hellraiser. You know how kids can be sometimes. Mm. For punishment, Zeus gave her in wedlock to his son Hephaestus, the blacksmith god. <laughs> Leave it to Zeus. Despite Zeus, Venus decided to take a few lovers on the side. A few? She was the goddess of love. Zeus got even more angry and inspired her with love for three mortal men. What happened to the three mortals? Uh, Anchises was killed by lightning, Adonis was slain by a wild boar, and Cyrus perished in combat. <gasps> To the bloody jinx. The thieves then attempt to make their move on stealing Venus, only for the thieves to be stopped by the best special effects that a TV movie's budget could buy. Unfortunately, because this is supposed to be a light-hearted movie, the thieves don't actually burn up to a crisp. 
Instead, they're picked up by Detective Bookman. Don't you two duffel bags ever get tired of me? Got us all wrong this time, Detective. There's a reward for a stolen statue. And that guy got into his house. Now that's a ridiculous charge. Right, Mr. Beckman? Ridiculous? Yeah, sure it is. So why don't we let him go inside and take a look? Just to show him how twisted he is. And it's just about at this point, I'm not gonna lie, Vanna White probably gives her best performance of the entire movie thanks to her South Carolina roots. And considering what we've already sat through... That's not only saying a lot, but it could stand to add a lot more than that. Uh, th- this is... A v- Vera? I am Vera, Ted's friend. You, um, want to tell me what went on here? If that is your wish. I was splishing and splashing in the hot tub. Then I heard the voices of two strange mortals inside the house. I became very quiet and hid. Suddenly, there were loud noises and screams. Lights flickered and everything went dark. Did you see these two, uh, mortals? No. Bravo, Vanna, bravo! That will be your finest moment on camera until you make a cameo on Full House six years later. White, this is an honor. There's something I've always wanted to ask you. Do you get paid by the letter? You know when they buy a vowel? That money goes to me. So now that Vannikin covered Dr. Pepper's ass once again, it's time for the two of them to get real. Really real. So real that the fate of the gods just might hang in the balance. I can make your life wonderful if you would just let go of your earthly ties and come back with me to Mount Olympus. Would immortality be so bad? Oh, yeah? I know your history with husbands. I don't want to be your next victim. What if you get tired of me in a hundred years and throw me off the mountain? I'll risk it. I love Greek olives. You're not helping! It is your ring that awakened me. It is you I must return with to Mount Olympus. Or... Or what? Or I'm doomed to spend eternity as a statue. That is the decree of the gods. Never to feel the warmth of love and never to be near you again. Given the choice between one of the most famous TV personalities ever known, whether she's playing a fictional character or not, or the woman who had to suffer insult after insult against her TV neighbor, I honestly don't see what the big decision is here. I mean... Vanna White. I have not slept like that in ages. Marcy Darcy. I don't have to tell you how much easier it is to lug around small things. (laughs) Vanna White. And your answer? Or have I already had it? Marcy Darcy. I couldn't possibly take anything from you. Instead, let me give you something. Ten fingers of death. Vanna White. I am not here for your cold roast chicken. I am here for your love. Marcy Darcy. I am not a chicken. Why does he keep calling me a chicken? Yeah, real brain teaser there. So, the night before he gets married to Marcy Darcy, Dr. Pepper gives in to his urges and spends a TV PG-friendly evening with the goddess of love. And while I wish time permitted us to discuss the moral loopholes of cheating on one's fiancé with a freaking goddess, what follows is the recollection of that evening. What is the one product name that best described your romantic behavior? I would say uh, Dr. Pepper. Dr. Pepper! (laughs) Okay, she said you were the jolly green giant. (laughs) I'm sorry, but it was... I'm not that big, Karen. Oh. 
Okay, I kind of sort of wish that happened, but instead, the real Dr. Pepper is putting on some last-minute touches on his wedding. All the while, Vanekin scopes out her future Vanquished Game Show competitors. Welcome back to the dating game, everybody. It's time now for Stephanie to share with us her decision. Is it going to be Bachelor number one, Bachelor number two, or Bachelor number three? It's going to be Bachelor number three. Number three. Stephanie has chosen a wimp. Choose number three. You know, as crazy as it may seem, Vanna's performance has actually improved a great deal in the back end of the movie. I'm not kidding. I mean, it's not enough for it to become a silver lining, but you know she's at least trying. But with 10 minutes to go, we need one more round of conflict. Luckily, little Richard returns one more time to make good use of his SAG AFTRA membership. Oh, Teddy, are you in there? This is Alfonso. I lost the address to the wedding. And Captain's aunt is unlisted. So I thought I'd follow and... You! You! Desecrator! No question! So Little Richard's character died, I think. As we finally get to our wedding climax. As Joe Isuzu comes in to give Dr. Pepper a forged version of the wedding ring that he plans to slip on Marcy Darcy's chicken wing. But just as the holy bonds between soft drink mascot and poultry punchline unite in wedded bliss, quite possibly the most convoluted chain of events start to take place. Which is weird because it can easily be summed up as Venus barges in to stop the wedding and Dr. Pepper tries to wiggle his way out of an awkward situation. Kathy, I know this is going to sound strange, but... I'm a psychologist, remember? Strange is my life. I accidentally put the ring on the finger of a statue of Venus and this is what happened. You're right. That is strange. He speaks the truth. And he is mine forevermore. Look, if you give me the ring back and you leave quietly, then I won't have to call the police. Kathy, let the two of us work this out. You see, he does not love you. Away, you are history. You do love me, don't you, Ted? Be gone before I lay you dead at my feet. But through flashbacks, Vanekin realizes that experiencing loss is actually a part of love. So eventually... She relents. I could not even recognize true love when I saw it. At least, love has touched me once. Before the gods send me to the eternal doom of my stony exile. I release you from your troth. There was no last night. <laughs> what do you know? I guess that newlywed game clip was valid after all. I'm not that big, Karen. <laughs> Thankfully, nobody has to get crushed. Just in time for the couple to not only say their I do's, but also to avoid the scrutiny of Detective Bookman. What happened in here? Just two people in love. Yeah? What about the fireworks? He told you. Just two people in love. Does that call for a police raid? By the way, I think I know where you'll find that missing Venus. Mm -hmm. Where else but the museum that she was in at the beginning of the movie? And just before the gods closed the book, they make sure to leave us a bookmark that absolutely nobody is going to want. Oh, my husband Zeus, our daughter Venus fared well. She recognized true love and allowed it to go its own way. You make a point. I shall consider giving her a second opportunity. Perhaps when the warm season ends, Venus always did love that time of Anno. Thank you. 
Thankfully, a different kind of god helped everybody at NBC come to their senses. The gods of criticism. So, where does Goddess of Love find itself enshrined among the stone statues of Telehel? Luckily, the fires of the Nine Circles can heat up some of that cold roast chicken. Limbo, lust, gluttony, greed, wrath, heresy, violence, fraud, treachery. According to David Hofstede's book, What Were You Thinking? The 100 Dumbest Events in Television History, reportedly when Vanna took part in the initial screen test for the movie, the movie's producers sentenced Vanna to three months of acting lessons. By the time of the second screen test, she was good enough for NBC to proceed with the project, but not without strong reservations from co-writer Phil Margot, stating, quote, "...working with her was a pleasure." But watching the words in our script, the result of a year's sweat and blood, turn to lead and sink through the floor, was sheer torture for me. I couldn't wait until we finished the damn thing, end quote. Although this TV movie looked doomed from the start in terms of production, it still gave NBC something that they both needed and didn't need at the same time. Something that would draw in a crowd that was almost exclusively out of curiosity when very little else was in redeeming qualities. The curiosity being, could Vanna White act her way out of a toga? In the interest of fairness, even Vanna herself admitted at some point that this wasn't going to win her any Emmy Awards, stating in an interview with the LA Times, quote, And I thought Wheel was hard. I hope these people aren't expecting Shakespeare. On a scale of 1 to 10, I thought I was maybe a 3 or 4. That sounded awful, didn't it? End quote. Points for modesty, but to be fair, while her acting was about as stone as the statue version of herself, she did manage to hold it together by the end of the movie. Sure enough, the movie actually wound up in second place against ABC's miniseries War and Remembrance, but TV critics were none too eager to pounce on Vanna's performance. But did that stop NBC from rerunning the movie just a few months later? Here, no! In fact, the network used those critical barbs to their advantage in what has to be the best example I can think of of turning lemons into lemonade. Keeping in mind, most of the blurbs that the announcer is going to say here are actually out of context to the actual statements. The Thousand Oaks Chronicle called it successful. USA Today wrote, it's a good thing. The LA Herald Examiner called it unwatchable, but they went out of business. New Year's Eve, Vanna White will change your mind forever about poultry. I am not here for your cold roast chicken. Invite the goddess of love to your party. NBC thought it would be a win-win situation because even though the critics panned it, people would tune in and strengthen the Peacock's bottom line for an evening, one that I'm sure would appeal to advertisers well enough for the network to make a quick buck off of Vanna White and Atoga. So we do gotta mark this one for a grazing of greed. As for the movie itself... We mentioned that Venus slash Aphrodite, being the goddess of love, is also the embodiment for all things love, up to and including the kind of lust that would ultimately cause Dr. Pepper to cheat on Marcy Darcy. At the same time, there were all those threats during the movie of Vanekin threatening to crush those who got on her way in wrathful ways. Up to and including electrocutions and destruction of properties, so we do have some collateral violence. And of course, that open-ended ending, where it sounded like there was going to be a TV series out of the whole thing, but ultimately did not, putting that notion, as well as Venus herself, in a permanent state of limbo. And finally, even though it may seem like a total coincidence, the fact that they seem to have heavily borrowed elements from both Love American Style and Mannequin kind of makes me wonder if Don Segal and Phil Margot had good enough lawyers on retainer to help fight possible fraud charges. 
Oh, uh, which reminds me, I, I hope there's still enough time to play this clip. She's the dummy! Oh. No! She's the dummy! No! Now she's the dummy! Uh, no. No, sir. Uh, turns out we're all dummies for having watched this. Goddess of Love earns six out of nine circles of telehell. And quite honestly, I think Vanna may have wasted a little too much of her time trying to chase Dr. Pepper when her ideal man happens to be the next door neighbor to the chicken lady that Dr. Pepper married. On my side of the bed. <laughs> What's the difference? I don't know. If I roll out in the middle of the night and get confused and go to the bathroom in the hall. Okay, I'll move over. Go buy yourself your own ring around the collar worker. This big lug is mine. It's times like this I'm glad there's a Ben and Jerry's. You're going to buy ice cream? No, I'm going to go buy Ben and Jerry. Next time on Telehell, it's time to reopen the doors to the big game hall of shame. We got a call? It's my husband. What happened? We were in the pro shop. He and Bob were discussing global warming and... He's got his head up his ass. Not the first time. Until then... If it's not in Telehell, it's not worth a damn. Our New Year's resolution is to take better pride in what we do. With that being said, if you heard something in this episode that didn't quite sound right, at least in terms of research, feel free to bug us on our new complaint line, telehealthpodcast at gmail.com. Telehell was written, produced, edited, and narrated by me, Justin Hart. All clips used in this program are protected under the Fair Use Doctrine of the U.S. Copyright Act of 1976, and all clips used come courtesy of their respective companies and owners. Some of the music used in this program comes courtesy of YouTube and their audio library service. Telehell is a production of Horton Road and is distributed by Libsyn. Now that everybody is getting mysterious chemicals injected into their arms, that can only mean one thing. It's almost safe to socialize with people again. So why not get a head start on that and follow us on our social feeds? Twitter and Facebook, both at Telehell Podcast. By the way, shows like these aren't cheap. Do what you can and can what you do at patreon.com slash Podcast. Mm-hmm.